you will, remain standing and open with, your, with me in your Bible to Revelation chapter 5. Revelation chapter 5, I'll read verse, let's read verses 5 and 6. Revelation 5, 5 and 6. And one of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered, so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and with seven eyes which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. This is God's Word. Let's pray. Father, we ask that You would continue to bless. You already have. You've proven Yourself faithful. You've taught us already. Our hearts have been cheered. Our hearts have been set upon Christ. And so we say, yes, amen, Lord, just continue to work. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. You may be seated. Whether we're in times of peace, where our measures are preventative and preparative, or whether we're in times of difficulty and affliction, where our measures are curative, the medicine for the individual Christian and for the church is always the same. Speaking broadly, the Bible says whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. Being a little more specific, set your minds on the things that are above, not on things that are on earth. Why? For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. Even more specifically... Let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before Him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God in heaven, where our life is hidden, where we find... He who is true, honorable, just, pure, lovely, commendable. He who is all excellence and the only one worthy of our praise. Set your mind on Christ. Look to Jesus. Consider Him who endured from sinners such hostility against Himself. Why? So that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. We fix the eyes of our soul upon God. That's always the answer. We teach ourselves again and again who He is and that He Himself has said, 
amazingly, I'll be your God and you be my people. And I'll never leave you or forsake you. Now what, what could better prevent us from trusting in creatures than to set our eyes upon the Creator? Nothing. This, this is what works. What could better prepare us for difficult days? What could better carry us through suffering than to know who our God is and that He is our shepherd and that He is always near? What, what better remedy is there than that? In every situation, and this is what's happening in the book of the Revelation, the whole book is this. It is the revelation of Jesus Christ. Look at Jesus. Look at who God is. Look at who Christ is. And as you look at the world, and we have to look at the world, but see it from His perspective, not just our perspective. We've looked into the throne room here in chapters 4 and 5. We've discovered that the sovereign ruler still seated upon the throne. We've seen the victorious lion of the tribe of Judah has already conquered. And we've seen the lamb standing. And we've looked at some of his particular excellencies. Now the question is, how does all of this help the suffering saints in Asia Minor specifically? How does it help them? Or we could say, how does this help the saints in England? Or in Pakistan? Or Malawi? Or the Philippines? How does it help? And I'm not asking, how does it give them good thoughts? Because you can read this and have great thoughts, but great thoughts are, not, are only going to go so far. How can it... Rem- I'm not asking, how can it just remind them of some reality or some truth or, or give them a good proverb to walk by? I'm asking, how does it actually affect and change real people? Because that's what we're after. Actual people, bodies and souls being changed by the revelation of who God is and who the Lord Jesus Christ is. How does it work? That's the question. A sovereign and yet unapproachable God will bring very little comfort, as we've seen. And so we we are introduced to Christ, who is the sovereign and approachable Lamb. But remember, we've been talking about the Lamb, the one who was slain. The Lamb, He is the Lion, but He's the Lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David. If we trace that back as we did the root of Jesse, we're talking about a man here. One who was slain from this tribe, from this family line. We're talking about a human being. And if you're orthodox, you say, yes, but he is God. And that is correct. But he's still a true man. A true man with, with a true human nature, subject to all of the common limitations of a human nature, except sin. We say, yes, but at this point we're reading of Christ, the God-man, and He's been glorified. That is true. But He still has flesh and bones. He still has the, uh, he's, he's physical and capable of being handled and touched. He has the capability of, of eating, consuming broiled fish, chewing it with His teeth and swallowing it. And it goes somewhere. We're talking about a man here. And this, this brings us to another one of the great dilemmas of the Christian faith that's only satisfied when we believe the revelation of God by faith. And we take it by faith. It is an immeasurable comfort to know that there is a man in heaven for us. Uh, I've written quite a few emails and stuff in recent weeks to politicians. I'm, I'm fairly certain none of them read any of them. I don't believe we have representation. They can tell me we do. I don't believe we have it. 
I do have representation in the throne of God, in the court of God. I have that. We have personal representation in the court of heaven. And yet, how can this man in heaven bring real, experiential, personal comfort and blessing to an innumerable host of individual saints? Remember I said last week, to conquer earthly kingdoms is nothing compared to conquering one soul. Just one. And yet, Christ has an innumerable host of souls... How can this man effectually strengthen all seven churches of Asia Minor all at once? Or we could say, we know that there are more churches in that time period, all of the churches of the first century at once. Or what about all of the churches in all places, in all times, all at once? How can this one man deal properly, personally, intimately, and relevantly to each saint in all churches, in all places, simultaneously, so that he never has to break the promise, I will never leave you or forsake you, and I will be with you until the end of the age. How can that happen? Even during the earthly ministry of Christ, we see the the limitations of His humanity when, when friends wanted to bring a paralytic into His presence, and they couldn't get to Him. It wasn't just that they they wanted to get within a a radius or a sphere of some fog of power. They wanted to get to Him, and yet it was so crowded they couldn't physically get there. So they had to go through the roof. And this is why Jesus Himself said, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the Helper will not come to you. But listen, but if I go, I will will send Him to you. That's a promise. Now who's the helper here? The comforter. It's the Holy Spirit. John Owen, speaking of the Holy Spirit, says that He is the promised sole cause and author of all the good that in this world we are or can be made partakers of. For there is no good communicated unto us from God, but it is bestowed on us or wrought in us by the Holy Ghost. No gift, no grace, no mercy, no privilege, no consolation do we receive, possess, or use, but it is wrought in us, collated on us, and manifested unto us by Him alone. The Holy Spirit of God. The Holy Spirit is not incarnate. The Holy Spirit is not the Son. He's not subject to the limitations of a human nature. It is by the Holy Spirit that Christ is with us to the end of the age. It's by the Holy Spirit that Christ can say, I'll never leave you or forsake you. Now, maybe you object again and say, doesn't this detract from the glory of the man Christ Jesus? The answer is no. Let me read the text again. Between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with, we'll look at this word in a minute, with seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God. The subject of the last part of this verse is the Holy Spirit. But it is the Holy Spirit in His relationship to the Lamb. And remember, the Lamb is being brought forth so that we can see His relationship as mediator of all of redemptive history. And so the Lord Jesus 
has not only the authority and the right to open the scroll of redemptive history, but he also has the capability to execute its contents over the whole earth with a view toward effectual, personal application of his finished work in all pertinent spheres, at all times, and in all places. And he does this by the Holy Spirit, who is the Spirit of Christ. So I want to open up this latter part of the verse under three headings. There's sort of like three pieces of a puzzle. As I was sitting back there, I was, yes, I was listening, but I was also thinking, and I was realizing that the three parts of this sermon are sort of like three pieces to a puzzle. And by themselves, uh, without good segues in between the points, they might seem kind of awkward, but hopefully by the time we put them all together, this will form a complete complete thought. So three headings. Number one, the Lamb and the Spirit. Number two, the Spirit and the Lamb. And then number three, the Spirit and the Church. Number one, the Lamb... And the Spirit. I want to remind you who John is seeing here. We've already met the Lion and the Lamb, a representative image of the Lord Jesus Christ. This Lamb, notice the language, has already been slain. So the vision we're seeing follows, is after the crucifixion, it's after the resurrection and ascension. This Lion has conquered through His death and His resurrection. And then we have this word, with. Or could be translated, having. It's a participle, which means you put ing on the end of it. Uh, and withing is not one of our words. So this lamb is having. It's a word of possession or ownership. It's a personal asset belonging to this lamb. The same word that was used in chapters 2 and 3 over and over where the, the Spirit says, uh, He who has an ear, same word. He who is having an ear, it's your ear. My ear's not your ear. Your ear's not mine. My ear belongs to me. That's this word. The lamb is with or is having seven horns, seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God. Now I'm going to take this backwards. These personal assets belonging to the lamb, horns and eyes, are the seven spirits of God. The revelation is not near as tricky as people make it out to be. What are the the horns and the eyes? The seven spirits. Now... We've seen this phrase before from chapter 1, verses 4 and 5. Grace to you and peace from Him who is and who was and who is to come. That's the Father. And from the seven spirits who are before His throne. And from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead and the ruler of the kings of the earth. That's the Son. And just like all of these greetings throughout the epistles, you have a Trinitarian formula. So we have the Father at the beginning and the Son at the end and that leads us to believe that the middle person called the seven spirits is really just a way to refer to the Holy Spirit of God. The third person of the Trinity. But we still want to know, why does he say seven spirits? Why didn't he just say the Spirit or the Holy Spirit? I believe there are a couple reasons why John uses this language. The first Canonically, if we're walking through the Scriptures, Isaiah 11.2 is a text which refers to Christ, the Messiah, as the branch coming from Jesse or David, which we just saw in verse 5. And Isaiah says, There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. And the Spirit of the Lord 
shall rest upon Him. Now just notice the names or the, the ascriptions of the Spirit. Number one, it's the Spirit of the Lord. The Spirit of wisdom and understanding. Or we could say the Spirit of wisdom and the Spirit of understanding. The Spirit of counsel and the Spirit of might. The Spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. Or the Spirit of the fear of the Lord. You see, seven ascriptions to the Spirit. Now I, I kind of... I'm in agreement that it, it might not be best to refer to the sevenfold Spirit, but the one Holy Spirit who is given these seven particular attributes. And this is the Spirit who would come and rest upon the Messiah, Christ. So that's the first reason I think John uses this language of the seven spirits. And if you want to say sevenfold Spirit, that's, that's okay. Zechariah chapter 4 is the other text which we have looked at before. In Zechariah chapter 4, the prophet sees seven lamps and seven lips on each lamp. And in that context, God says, Not by might, nor by power, but by my Spirit, says the Lord. The picture is that what Zechariah was seeing was a picture of the Holy Spirit. The ever-burning, never-ceasing light of the gospel fueled by the Holy Spirit of Yahweh. That's how God's going to build His temple. It's the Holy Spirit of God. And so in John's vision, we have Jesus Christ the Lamb who owns as a personal asset the Holy Spirit who is displayed here having or as seven horns and seven eyes. So we're talking about the Holy Spirit. Seven horns. Horns throughout Scripture represent power and strength. Isaiah, or a Psalm rather, Psalm 18.2, The Lord is my rock and my fortress, and my deliverer, my God, my rock, in whom I take refuge, my shield, and the horn of my salvation. Horns also represent, and this is especially useful, political domination. In the book of Daniel, Chapter 7 and verse 24. As for the ten horns, out of this kingdom, ten kings shall rise. The horn is a picture specifically of political domination and power. A, a ruler represented as a horn. And so the Holy Spirit is illustrated here as seven horns. Perfect, complete power and domination. Absolute authority and power. And... The Holy Spirit is the sovereign Lord over all of the kingdoms of men. Seven horns and seven eyes. Eyes in Scripture teach us of insight, knowledge. This is how we, we take in. It's a sensory organ. Take in information. So seven eyes teach us of the perfect, complete understanding and knowledge of the Holy Spirit. Or what we, would, we could say very simply, the omniscience of the Spirit. In Proverbs 15.3, it says, The eyes of the Lord are in every place, keeping watch on the evil and the good. We know that God is a Spirit. He does not have a body like man. But by His Spirit, He can be all over, in every place. Jeremiah 16.7, For my eyes are on all their ways. They are not hidden from me. Neither is their iniquity concealed from my eyes. God sees. He is all-seeing, all-knowing. And as a means of comfort, 2 Chronicles 16.9, The eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth to give strong support to those whose heart is blameless toward Him. Not only do these eyes 
take in, but they actually actively pursue information and, and run, it says, throughout the whole earth to give. The eyes actually have power to give support. This is the Holy Spirit of God. All-powerful, all-knowing. The Holy Spirit of God is God. The Holy Spirit, according to Acts 16.7, is also the Spirit of Jesus. It's His Spirit. The personal asset of the risen Christ. In Zechariah 12.10, He's called the Spirit of grace and supplications, or grace and pleas for mercy. The Spirit that aids us in our prayers because we don't know what to pray for as we ought. And so the Spirit helps us in our weakness. In John 14.7, He's called the Spirit of truth. John 14.26, He's called the Helper or the Comforter. In 1 Corinthians 2.13, we learn that the Spirit teaches and interprets to us the truth that He teaches. In 1 Corinthians 2.10, He searches the deep things of God. In Romans 8.2, He's called the Spirit of life. Romans 8.16, we learn that the Spirit bears witness with our spirit. Romans 15, 16, the Spirit sanctifies us. In 2 Corinthians 3, 18, we, we quote a lot. It is the Spirit who transforms us from one degree of glory to another. This is by the Lord who is the Spirit. Galatians 5, 17, the Spirit is contrary to the flesh. Ephesians 4, 3, the Spirit gives unity in the body. Ephesians 3.16, the Spirit strengthens us with power. Acts 1.8, Jesus said, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. And we see that in Acts 4.31, the Spirit gives boldness in preaching. John 16.14, we learn that the Spirit will glorify Christ. So saying that the Spirit comes in here to, to apply the blessings does not detract from Christ. This is His Spirit. He's the one with the Spirit. The Lamb is having the Spirit. So that's the relationship of the Lamb and the Spirit. Now let's go to the second heading, the Spirit and the Lamb. This is not something new that we see in the Revelation. And, and all of a sudden, now that they're in heaven together, they, they're working together. This is, there's always been a relationship between the Son and the Spirit. And there, there has been a special relationship between them as Christ has carried out the work of mediator. Remember when we talk about the Lord Jesus, we're talking about the God-man. God the Son incarnate. Two natures in one person. You have the divine nature of God. You have the human nature of Jesus of Nazareth. They have come together in the person, the Son of God. As our confession says, two whole, perfect and distinct natures were inseparably joined together in one person, and this is very important, without conversion, composition, or confusion. They didn't, they didn't blur together. They didn't gel and become one. Two complete natures in one person. And so as the Lord Jesus, in His humiliation, is working out the work of our redemption, He does so as one unique person. No conversion, no composition, no confusion. This is our Lamb. No confusion between these two natures. The Scriptures also teach us that the Holy Spirit is the Spirit of the Father and the Spirit of Christ the Son. Proceeding forth from them both, it says. The Father and the Son. And yet, 
The Holy Spirit, I'm going I'm to go slow here. The Holy Spirit, the Spirit of the Son, who is of the same divine essence as the Father and the Son, is not the Son. He's not the same person. He's a different person altogether. Now what does this have to do with the Spirit and the Lamb? As the man Jesus walked the earth, our Lion of Judah, our, our Lamb of God, it wasn't as though the divine nature was being piped into the human nature to make it extravagant, to make it what it was. If that were so, then He ceases to be true man. It was the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, who filled the man Jesus with all the fullness of grace and blessedness. Now, we want to ask, why could not the Son, who's been joined to the human nature of Christ, why could not the Son just sort of, you know, like I said, just sort of pipe in, just squirt some divinity over there into that nature? Because there's no composition. There's no, there's no mixture. And again, that would be of no use to us. Because we don't have divine nature. We're human. Everything that we see happening in the earthly ministry of Christ, carried out as the full work of obedience to His Father in the place of sinners, was carried out in utter dependence of the Holy Spirit as a man. In other words, He came to the earth, took our flesh, worked out an everlasting righteousness as a man in the power of the Holy Spirit. That's the Spirit and the Lamb working together. Then at the end of His ministry, Christ gives His farewell address. We call it uh, the Olivet Discourse very often, or the Upper Room Discourse. And that discourse almost primarily deals with the giving of the Holy Spirit. The same Holy Spirit that He has. He says, John 14, I will ask the Father and He will give you another Helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth. In John 14, 27, again we ask... How is this helpful to suffering saints? The same context. He says, peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. He's going to give them peace. What is the fruit of the Spirit? Peace. The peace He had. The same peace that Christ had as He goes to Calvary as a lamb to the slaughter with His mouth silent, set to accomplish our redemption. That kind of peace... I'm going to give it to you. How did He do it? In the power of the Holy Spirit. After His ascension, uh, this verse is, we've read many times, Acts 2.33, Peter says, "...being therefore exalted at the right hand, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, He has poured out this..." that you, are sell, you yourselves are seeing and hearing. And this was the, the Holy Spirit being manifest in their midst. It's as though Christ came to the earth, wrought out our redemption in His life and His death and His resurrection. He ascends into the heavens to the Father and He turns around and looks back at us with all authority in heaven and on earth. And He says, see, I've done it. Here's my Spirit. You follow me in the same Spirit. If He did not do it like that, we've got no confidence. We've got nothing to trust in. No hope. All we can say is, well, I'm glad... God has done something. But for me, I'm here. I need help now in my human body, in my human soul. And He gives us the Spirit. The Spirit of Yahweh. 
spirit of wisdom, the spirit of understanding, the spirit of counsel, the spirit of might, the spirit of knowledge, the spirit of the fear of the Lord. If you are in Christ, you have this spirit. It's not just a concept of truth. Christians don't just get together and talk about something we all agreed to believe. It is a person in us bringing us together, inside of us. The Holy Spirit dwells in you if you belong to Christ. All of that in two verses. John 1.14, we have seen His glory. Glory as the only Son of the Father, full of grace and truth. And verse 16, from His fullness we have all received grace upon grace. We saw it, He had it, He left, He gave it to us. Grace upon grace upon grace. This is what the Spirit does. As I've said before, grace is not just something God has, it's something God is. It is God in you, regardless of what you actually deserve, despite of your desert, God working effectually in you. That's His grace. In every church, every individual saint, in every place, in every time, all at once, the Spirit of God is in His people. The sovereign, dominating, omniscient Spirit of God dwelling, working, applying all the work of God in us and through us. That's seven horns, seven eyes. Number three, the Spirit and the church. This is where we, we get to the application. How is this comforting to us? These saints are suffering. How is this comforting? Go back to uh, Zechariah chapter 4. I want you to see this. Remember the context of what's happening here. Zechariah has seen a vision, and the point, the purpose of the vision is not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. That's verse 6 of this chapter. That's the point. What, what Zechariah the prophet is telling to Zerubbabel is the power that's going to build this temple, it's not human power. It's spiritual power. Again, the ever-flowing never-ceasing power of the Holy Spirit fuels the gospel lampstands, which are local churches. The true temple of God, the church, is built not by human might or power, but by the Spirit of God. Look at verse 10 of Zechariah chapter 4, the latter part of the verse. These seven are the eyes of the Lord which range throughout the whole earth. The only thing he's seen in sevens, again, are the lampstands and the lips, this picture, this spirit, the eyes of the Lord. Now why would the spirit of the Lord have to range throughout the whole earth if all we're talking about here is a second temple being built in Jerusalem? That doesn't make any sense. There's clearly a greater reality being foreshadowed in this picture and it's here in Revelation 5 taught to us explicitly the same words. Seven horns, seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. By who? The conquering Christ. He has sent His Spirit. The Lamb has sent the Spirit. Zechariah, the, sent, the, the Spirit is sent out in power to construct the temple. Here we see the Spirit being sent. And again, the church, in the New Testament, the church is the predominant fulfillment of the image of the temple. Yes, 
Christ refers to His physical body as the temple. The Apostle Paul tells local churches, you are the temple. And all together as the mystical body of Christ, we are the temple of the Lord. So we have this comfort. There is a man in heaven standing as our representative and our advocate with the Father. And that man has a Holy Spirit, the Spirit of Christ, who's been sent out into all the earth through the preaching of the gospel to establish biblical churches. And through that, Christ Himself continues to open up the scroll of redemptive history for the good of those churches. You see, it all centers around the plan of Christ and the Spirit working through the church. Now look over at chapter 6 of Zechariah. I want to drive this, this point home. Beginning at verse 12. And say to him, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Behold the man whose name is the branch. We know who this is, right? This is Christ. The man whose name is the branch. For he shall branch out from his place, and he shall build the temple of the Lord. It is he who shall build the temple of the Lord, and shall bear royal honor, and shall sit and rule on his throne. He's a king. And there shall be a priest on his throne. It's either a two-seater throne, or the king and the priest are one. I pick the latter. This king is also a priest. The council of peace shall be between them both. And the crown shall be in the temple of the Lord as a reminder to Helam, Tobijah, Jedeah, and Hen the son of Zephaniah. And those who are far off shall come and help to build the temple of the Lord. The Lord will build His church. Regardless of trials, regardless of persecution, the church is going to be built throughout the present age. Nothing can stop it. And this happens through the effectual power of the Holy Spirit. Paul uses this exact language in Ephesians. He says in Ephesians 2.13, But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Jesus. Verse 17 of Ephesians chapter 2. He, Christ, came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through Him we both have access in one Spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus Himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together, what kind of structure, Paul? Grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In Him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. You see, those who are far off, Gentiles. Those who are near, Jews. You've been brought together. You've been brought near. There's a structure being built. It's called a church. And it's growing into a holy temple. What's the purpose of a temple? A dwelling place for God. 
That's what Christ is building by His Spirit. This is why Jesus could say in John 14, 12, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in Me will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these will He do. Because I'm going to the Father. And what happens? He's going to send the Spirit. Greater works. Bigger. More broadly realized. Global in extent. Get out a globe sometime and look at how big the region of Galilee and Judea is. Very small. Because you've got a man. But now the Spirit has filled the church. Does this detract from Christ? No, it's His Spirit. We are His body. John 15, again, a little more specifically, when the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, He will bear witness about Me, and you also will bear witness, because you have been with Me from the beginning. How does the church, how does the Spirit build the temple? Through the witness bearing of those who've been brought near. The Spirit of Christ goes out into all the earth, fueling local churches to preach the gospel in the power of the Holy Spirit, and the temple of the Lord is built. By us? No. By Christ. But wait, He's in heaven through His Spirit working in us. See, the blessedness of the Holy Trinity. All of it works perfectly together. And again, what kind of spirit is this? A spirit perfect in power and knowledge, omnipotent and omniscient. Nothing can stop this spirit. And therefore, nothing can stop a a spirit-filled church. So then, by way of application, Luke chapter 11 and verse 13. If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children... How much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask Him? Number one, we must refuse to operate in the arm of the flesh. We must refuse. Now this is assuming that we have determined we're going to do something for the kingdom of Christ. What I, want, what I want to know is, and don't answer out loud, but I'm not asking to hear myself talk. Put your finger on what you did this week for the cause of the kingdom of Christ. Put your finger on it in your mind. What is it? What have you done? It's fine to work in the arm of the flesh if all you're doing is fleshly work. But if you're going to do anything for the kingdom of Christ, you must refuse to operate in the arm of the flesh. And this assumes as citizens, we're doing something for the kingdom. So what is it? What has been done for the kingdom? As an individual, what have you done? As a family, what have you done? As a church, what have we done for the kingdom this week? And as we do it, we must decide I'm not going to operate in the arm of the flesh. We have conversations with friends, family, co-workers and things. I know these things are happening often. Conversations with people where we are making the attempt to explain the gospel. And a lot of times those conversations end with, well, I just had to walk away or, or I just couldn't go any further. You know what the reason is? Because you were operating in the arm of the flesh. 
Perhaps you did your devotion that morning and you were thinking of this conversation, but you were thinking, well, as long as I have enough knowledge in my mind, when I talk to that person, I'm really going to crack their argument in pieces. You're operating in the arm of the flesh. That won't work. You'll start that conversation and you'll turn around and walk away time after time after time with no fruit because you've not prepared in the power of the Holy Spirit. You have to refuse. I will not operate in the arm of the flesh. Now, that doesn't mean we don't study. That doesn't mean we don't prepare. That doesn't mean we don't pray. But we have to recognize that this is something we have to determine to do. By nature, we'll go on in the flesh. And so if that's our nature, then we have to determine, I'm not going to, go any, I'm not going to do that anymore. I, I'm, I'm getting fed up with the conversations ending like that. I'm not satisfied walking away from lost people. I don't want that anymore. I want to walk away from converted people. That's what I want. Determine. I will not operate in the arm of the flesh. Secondly, then we must rely on the power of the Holy Spirit. Rest in the power of the Spirit. Again, we must be in the Word. We must be students of the Word. The, the best thing that can happen is that we come out with Scriptures. But in prayer and as we study, we have to be preparing that the Spirit is going to lead in the moment and be resolved to let the power of the Spirit work. Don't operate in the arm of the flesh. We must rely on the power of the Holy Spirit. And therefore, and here's, the, here's my main point, we must ask the Father for the Holy Spirit. You've got to ask. He says, If you know how to give good gifts to your children... How much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask Him? He's assuming you're going to ask. Now, so that means as we, as we are preparing, and whatever, it might not be merely an evangelistic conversation. As we go throughout the day, as we're seeking to labor in the world as kingdom citizens, we have to refuse to operate in the arm of the flesh. In every situation. But we ask, Lord, I have come to Your Word. I've been warmed. I've felt it. Now as I'm praying and preparing, ask, Father, give me the Holy Spirit as I need it for the situations that are coming today, whatever they might be. You might know they're coming. You might not know they're coming. He knows what's coming. Ask Him, give me your Holy Spirit. And you can even pray it. I resolve that when that time comes, I will not rely on the arm of the flesh. I will rely on the power of the Spirit. But you must ask. And this is how Christ builds and sustains His church through His Holy Spirit. But we have to recognize this transfer of power, so to speak. A lot of times we think, well, I got converted, so now everything that I do is just great or, or Spirit-filled. And some people think that. Everything, every word that they speak is Spirit-filled. Uh, I think I met one at Lowe's yesterday. That's not the case. You ask, and the Father will give. But you must ask. Now as we come to the Lord's table, I say that every week. As we come to the table. As we come to the table. Picture in your mind the we. As we. As Ben said, he started, when he started, I said, he's starting where I'm finishing. We don't have to picture it in our minds. We can look around. 
as we come to the table and think about our history, our ancestry, our, our, our upbringing, geographical locations. Maybe we, we lived farther away from here, but now we've come closer. At some point, we could probably all trace it back to pretty much a small geographical area, and then people spread out, and now we've come back together. But as we come to the table, we need to ask from time to time, how, it, how did we get here? How did we Gentiles who were once far off, get the invitation to the table of the Lord. We have to understand we were once far off. If you don't understand that, you're not to step one. You were once far off. I was once far off. How has this happened? It's through the expansion of Christ's church through primarily Spirit-empowered preaching. In other words, here's another application. Do you believe that Revelation 5-6 is true? If not, just turn around and look. Look in the room. The Spirit has been sent out into all the earth. And people from different places, different backgrounds are coming together, have been brought near. As Ephesians 2 says, In Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near. How? By the blood of Christ. I say it weekly. And it's, it's, this is not throwaway language. We have to understand that that blood sealed, that life sealed the covenant. The covenant guarantees the Spirit. That's how we got here. He died and made it so. We will come. He knew it. He knew we would be here. He shed His blood. He gathered us here. So as the elements are passed, meditate upon Christ, enduring the cross, despising the shame, for the joy of ascending into the heavens and sending His Spirit so that people in Taylorsville, North Carolina, a bunch of Gentiles, pork eaters, could come to His table. We were far off doesn't matter how, how early we, we began in church. I was in church the first, first time I could be in church. I was far off. I was as far from God as anybody. We were far off. We've been brought near. And the nearness is of table fellowship. There's a man in heaven. We can't go to his table like this. But we can come to this table. It's a picture. He wants us to see every week you've been brought near. You're near. By my blood, I've brought you near. So consider Christ, and then we'll come to the table together.